0: You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks.
1: Enjoy the show.
0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I want to talk about a few things in this cold open, but before I do, I just want to thank all of you for all of your support. You guys have been unbelievable. I am so excited to be here today because I get to sit across from a guy who is one of the funniest actors and I'm talking about Tony Cox. And the first thing I want to tell you is this. I was at a shoot today. I was out of the office and I'm rushing back here because I want to be on time for this because I have so much respect for Tony and as I always say that line of Vince Lombardi said if you're early you're on time if you're on time you're late and if you're late don't bother showing up. And so I get here 15 minutes before the time we're supposed to be here, and I'm thinking, God, I feel really good. And as I'm pulling into the spot in the garage, my phone dings, and it's a text from one of my producers, and it says, Barry, where are you? Tony Cox has been in the lobby for 30 minutes. I'm thinking to myself, God damn it, this guy shows up over a half hour early for the gig and puts me to shame. And even though we started this podcast three minutes early, I feel as I'm sitting next to this guy, I'm late. And you wanna know what else I feel when I sit next to Tony Cox? I feel like I'm a bad person. I'll tell you why. If you've ever been around Tony Cox, and I was fortunate to represent Tony Cox for probably over five years, This is a man that is the nicest guy you will ever meet in your life. Everyone he meets, he treats like they're the president of the United States. I've seen him on sets where he treats the craft service person who's serving the trail mix the same way he treats the studio president of a feature film. For a guy who I know who's probably done close to a hundred movies and a guy who every time that he has the opportunity to go on frame in a film, he creates what I like to call holy shit moments. And if I could actually use one of my own sayings and make a joke that's been done since vaudeville... If I could look up holy shit moments in the dictionary, it would have a picture of Tony Cox right there. Every single thing he's ever done, you can always say that. Me, myself, and Irene where he's getting into a nunchuck fight with Jim Carrey or Bad Santa when (laughs) he's in the ring with Billy Bob Thornton it never ends and so if i could tell you anything that could help you in your personal or professional life it's very simple when i look at tony cox i think of nice guy treat people right be kind be generous be wonderful to everybody show up early all the time and in anything you do create holy shit moments and I can guarantee you you'll have a chance to have the kind of career
1: Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's
0: do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited today. I'm pumped. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you. Everybody get some popcorn. Let's go to sleep together. Tony Cox's thriving career spans some 30 years and has put him alongside some of the most respected directors and distinguished actors of our time. Grossing over one billion dollars in all the films he's been in. With over 85 film and television credits to his name, Tony Cox has been featured in a wide range of projects with roles in Bad Santa, Star Wars, Me, Myself and Irene, Date Movie, Disaster Movie, and television shows like Rescue Me with Dennis Leary and Martin, as well as music videos with artists like Eminem, The Foo Fighters, and Snoop Dogg. Joseph Anthony Tony Cox was born on March 31st, 1958 in Manhattan and spent his childhood in Uniontown, Alabama with his grandmother and grandfather. By age 10, Cox was already an avid drummer, originally planned to study music, but couldn't read music, and instead decided to pursue acting after watching Billy Barty, a little person who was also an actor. With encouragement from his relatives, Cox moved to Los Angeles, and at the age of 18, he began taking classes at the Merrick Studio School. Tony landed his first film role in 1980 with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hype, and then in 1981 appeared in the third Cheech and Chong feature, Nice Dreams. Two years later, Cox played an Ewok in Star Wars Return of the Jedi, and went on to also star in the Ewok-based spin-offs The Caravan of Courage and The Battle for Endor. In the late 80s, Cox appeared in George Lucas's Willow, Mel Brooks' Star Wars parody Spaceballs, as well as Tim Burton's 1988 hit Beetlejuice. Cox has appeared in several high-profile music videos that have been viewed by millions and millions of people, including Breakout by the Foo Fighters, Just Lose It by Eminem, and From the Church to the Palace by Snoop Dogg. Cox recently featured films included the 20th Century Fox comedy date movie with Allison Hannigan and Eddie Griffin and Jennifer Coolidge, an epic movie with Cal Penn and Fred Willard, both by writer-directors Friedman and Seltzer. Cox is well-known for his scene-stealing roles as Indiana Jones... In Disaster Movie, Friday opposite Ice Cube and Chris Tucker, me, myself, and Irene opposite Jim Carrey, and Oz the Great and Powerful, directed by Sam Raimi, which grossed over $300 million and had Cox co-starring as James Franco's loyal companion, Nuck. He is perhaps best known for his lead role in Bad Santa opposite Billy Bob Thornton, where he plays Marcus, the foul-mouthed brains of a safe-cracking team. Cox reprised his iconic role for Bad Santa 2, which has just opened in nearly 3,000 theaters for this upcoming holiday season, and is presently the number one comedy movie in America. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tony Cox. Thank you very much. I am so happy to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. How you doing, brother?
1: I'm doing good. Just happy to be here to see you, Barry. haven't seen you in a while.
0: What do you feel when you sit down next to me?
1: Oh, it's a good feeling. You know, you and I go back a long ways. You know, you gave me that opportunity. And, uh, you know, you, you were my manager. I
0: love managing. You're one of the most amazing people. But one of the things that I found that was so hard about our relationship as a manager and client, which frustrated me. If you were to look at all the movies and television programs that are released in a year, if there's seven roles that are listed for a little person, that would be a miracle. And so whenever you were sent out for those roles, probably half the time you got them. Yeah. But it's still, in my mind, not enough. How do you deal with the fact that you're in a profession where there's so many limited opportunities? How do you mentally stay prepared?
1: It's very frustrating. You know, it's a very frustrating thing because they just don't write. Writers just don't write good roles for little people. But then I also must say there are a lot of little people that can't act, and I think they should get themselves together. You know, you got people coming from everywhere, you know, thinking because they're little that they that they can act or they're funny and it doesn't work that way, and it makes it bad for all little people. But thankful for me, I mean, I don't have to read for roles anymore, so I'm glad I'm out of that position because, you know, they used to always, if they chose a little person and he didn't do the job, then they would always say, little people can't act, which puts you in that group. But because of Bad Santa and the other movies that I've done, I'm not characterized with that group. Also, Peter Dinklage, warwick davis and there are a few others but it's it's well you know what i went through because you tried to book me and it was tough you know but thank god you know bad santa came along and that opened up a lot of doors after bad santa i didn't read for any more roles
0: let's say a director is doing a movie an established director let's just take quentin tarantino And he's doing a movie, and there's a role for a little person. There's a great role here, but he wants you to
1: read. What do you say? I'm not reading. I'm not, you know. I was the one that made up my mind that I would not read for roles anymore. Because if you look at it, I'm one of the top little people that's out there. And I've been in the business for a long time. So why should I read? I mean, you know me. You know what you're getting. So I'm just not going to read. You know, when I made my mind up, it was the fact that, okay, I might lose some jobs, and I might lose money over it, but my mind is made up, and I'm not going back.
0: So tell our audience the moment that you decided, I'm not reading anymore, what happened? Well,
1: it was uh, after I did Bad Center. That was it. You know, I roles were coming in, and I didn't have to read for them, and they were just came a time when I you know I thought about it and I was like, Why should I read for Rose? Everybody know who I am. So why should I read? And it was at that point that I said, No, I'm I'm not reading. And Mark even put something to me. Your manager now, Mark Russo, who's an amazing manager and an amazing man who I work with. You know, he said, Suppose Eddie Murphy called, and I had to think about that. And actually I did get a call and I read but It wasn't a part for a little person, but they said we would see him, and it was for uh, Norbit, and I did go in.
0: I remember Norbit, and I was working with you at the time with Mark, and I think I was really adamant that you read. I didn't blame you for not reading but I thought it was an interesting role. It wasn't a role for a little person. It was just a regular role, and that was why I was so adamant about it, because I knew it was the kind of role that could be a breakout role, and it ended up going in a Cat Williams, and that was the role that really broke his career in film. I'm fascinated by the no reading thing, and I think to myself, like Clint Eastwood has this thing where he feels for actors. He wants them to read. He wants everybody to read, but he won't go in the room. So he has them go on tape either alone in their own house and just send it in, or he has them go if they prefer with a casting director, but he won't be in the room because he feels like it makes an actor uneasy. So if there was like an Academy Award winning director or somebody like that, who wanted you to read, I think if I were representing you, we'd end up going toe-to-toe, battling it out, and I would try my hardest to convince you to read because I would rather have you lose a role by reading rather than lose it by not reading. I want to change this up. I'm Jewish. There's this expression called self-hating Jews Mm -hmm. where we hang around, sometimes we go to a Jewish get-together and we're just like oh, Jesus, I can't believe I'm a part of this tribe. Are there some times where you're hanging out with little people and you're like, ugh, dirty, rotten world. I hate these fucking
1: people. Well, I I don't really, you know, hang with them too much. I used to, you know, like back in the day, but I just kind of like hang with my family. Um, But I have been around them. You know, I played basketball on the teams with them, and, you know, um, and they're a good group to hang out with, you know. I mean, they might get into their own thing sometimes where we do get rowdy, you know, because, hey, we little people, you step on us when we dance and, you know, people butts be hitting us in the face, or you know, you got to push them off. Or I've seen some little women gave them a sock to the butt, you know, like, hey, you know, and they said the word, get off, you know. So, no, but they all right, you know. I, I like my little people. What's little people basketball like? You have to see. I have a documentary that out, and I could shoot the ball from half court. I used to average like about 18 to 20-some points a game, and we won some championships in basketball. I played with two teams. One team was the Hollywood Shorties. We were similar to the Globe Trotters, And then we had another team that we competed against little people. We won about seven, seven eight, or nine championships, but I played on about four or five of those championships teams. And I also have, I have a gold medal in basketball, four, And I have a gold medal in table tennis because I ruled in table tennis. That's something you don't know about me. I don't know
0: that. So when you play basketball in these leagues, is the court the same and the height of the hoop's the same?
1: The court's the same. The hoop's the same. We only have one rule when we're playing against average size people. The ball must bounce once before you can get the rebound, but we can get it any time. So that makes it fair.
0: You used a term that I've never heard before. What's that?
1: average size people. Yeah. Well, you're not little people, that's for sure. Is that the term? I, I don't know. I mean, some little people say average size people, and some say they don't like to say average-sized. size. What is average, you know? But I use average size. That's what I say. Tell me
0: what offends you that people would say to you or terms that people would use to describe your disability
1: the m word
0: the m word yes
1: you know what that is right yes i do yeah that's a word that we don't like that's a word it's almost as bad as saying the n word it's not quite there but it's close it's a word that if you're a little person and you're walking and somebody says that word it'll like stop you in your tracks it's a word that we do not like and if you say that word to me I'm gonna tell you my name. I'm Tony Cox. And if you use that word again, then I'm gonna say something that's probably gonna make you mad and upset you, where you might wanna try to do something to me, but I'm proving a point to you that I don't wanna be called that name. I've said it to you once. I've told you. Now, since you did it again, I'm letting you know how I feel. Did you like what I just said? And that's how. And I'm glad that they have all these shows coming out about little people. So people can see, and you in all these shows, we do not like that word. And and I'll just say, the word is midget. Please, if you see a little person, do not say that word.
0: I represent a little person who's a comedian who's done two Showtime specials, and in his act, he uses the M word a lot. I think he uses it similarly to how Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock use the n-word he feels because he is a little person he has the right to use the word and he upsets a lot of little people when he uses the word can i share with you something he said by using the m-word yeah he has this line where he says that one time little people picketed his shows and they were in front of his show with the signs of course they were little index cards but they had the signs (laughs) the leader of the group said listen we're here because we're upset because you use the m-word and the m-word is like the n-word to a black person to us and we'd appreciate it if you stop using it." And he looked at the leader of the group and he said, midget please. Wow. But there are things that get him really upset if he's with his fiancee who's average size and he'll have a moment with her at the airport where he's kissing her and she's Asian and somebody will drive by Honey, look at that. A dwarf and an Asian woman. We've seen it all. And I noticed when he met my kids, I felt like he was a little tentative. And then he warmed up and they were wonderful and they had a great time with him and they went to his special and they were so happy. But he told me later that Kids are really hard to be around. They just don't have the social graces, and they can say the worst things. And then you have to be a certain way. You can't be mean to the kids.
1: Right, right. I mean, you know, with him saying the word, yeah, you know, he's a little person. If he wants to say it, I mean, he can say it, but that lets you know that he doesn't like that word. Because when he's out and when that person said what they said to him, look at the dwarf and the Asian lady, he didn't like that and just with kids you know kids will come up but kids don't know any better but it's the parents that if they see a little person and the kid didn't see the little person they'll touch their kids and like look look you know and it's the adults that, you know that's got this mind and and having them to look when they should be teaching them that you know if you see a little person you know what we'd like if you come up and talk to us you know what i mean we'll explain it to you if you want to know why we little You know, we'll explain it. But when you have an adult that's having a kid to look, look, look at him, you know, it's like we're not from the Ringling Brothers Circus. I mean, some of us have worked in it, but, you know, that's not right. You know, who's the kid in that situation? The parents are the kids. You know, it's, it's, it's just something that hurts.
0: Share with our audience the first time where you really were crushed by what somebody said.
1: Hmm. Well, it's, you know, basically it's somebody said, you know, look at the, look at the midget. And, and that was crushing. I mean, I go through, I don't go through it now because people know who I am. Even kids know, but man, that's, people don't realize how much that hurt. And it was like, look at, look at the midget, you know, uh, I, I, you know, over and over again, I just can't say it enough how that hurts. You know, and people need to understand how it hurts. You know, um, that's the only way I know to explain it. I, and I'm just so grateful that they have these shows out now that show how we we just don't like that word, how that word affects us. You know, and that's the only way I can explain it. Now, you met your wife in high school. No, I, I knew her in high school. I would, you know, I would see her, you know, and she was a prettiest girl by far in the whole school, but I just would see, I saw her like about three or four times, and I was like, you know, I was outside one day, I was like, boy, that girl is pretty. And there was a guy standing on the side of me, a friend of mine, he said, what girl are you talking about? I said, that girl right there. And he said, that's my sister. And I said, well, she's still pretty, you know. (laughs) She's still pretty, you know. But he was a classmate of mine's and a good friend. And it was way later when I was out in L.A. and she came from New York to L.A. And um, a friend of mine, when I went home one year, uh, a girl that she used to hang with, they used to be together a lot, um, She, uh, I, I saw her and I said, um, do you remember that girl you used to hang with? And she said, yeah. Then I said, well, if she come down, can you give her my phone number? And so I think she was a little surprised because she was trying to hit on me the girl that, you know, I was telling, you know, can you, I'm going to give you the number. Can you give it to her? And she said she'd probably be down this year. So she came down and she said, I was wondering why did you want my number? Because you and I had never talked or anything in school, you know. So she gave me a call and we would talk over time. And But she was always calling me and I set up a date three times, copped out, got scared.
0: You got scared or I, she got scared?
1: I got scared, you know. And then I think about the third time. You know, she said, I said, I'm sorry, you know, something happened, I had to do something. You know, she was saying, well, I know you have a lot of things to do and you're busy and everything. And I really wasn't at that time, I was just nervous, you know. But once I, I took her out to this Mexican place, man, I got a shot of that, uh, well, I had a, what is it, a uh, strawberry margarita. And once that went in, you know, it started to feel a little better, so I had good conversation with her.
0: So what you're saying is you recommend
1: alcohol for getting some action. Well, I tell you, I've always been shy. And that that alcohol kind of, you know, you know, it gave me nerves enough to talk to her. You know, we had a great conversation. And then I said, "Well, we'll go out again." And she said, "Okay." And she said, "That's when I knew you were interested."
0: The size of those margaritas at those Mexican <laughs> restaurants probably bigger than you were.
1: Yeah, they were. You know, it doesn't take much to go to my head. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So were you ever attracted to little people who were girls?
1: Um, I don't know. In, in my mind, coming up, I never had a problem with girls, Well, a lot of little people have, especially with average size.
0: How do you gain the strength of somebody who I think you're three feet, six inches tall right. to know that you can get the attention of a beautiful woman who's average size and that you can get them to a point where they'll be intimate with you?
1: yeah well like i said everything is still the same you know everything is still the same if 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 you're a woman and i'm the guy you know you don't need this other part of the legs you put me there i'm everything i can reach everything everything is there it's no different you know it it was just uh when you want something you go after it i mean that gives you nerves you know and um I wanted her real bad. I didn't know whether I was going to get her or not, but I took a shot. And, uh, and actually, she almost it almost didn't happen because she said, you never let me know that, that we were like an item. And I said, well, I thought you knew. And she said, I was about to date some other guy because I thought you weren't interested. And, you know, with me, I just thought she knew, you know. But she said, no, you have to tell a woman. And so I finally told her and there it was, it happened.
0: And so you got married and you have a child. So when you're about to make a decision to have a child and you're a little person and you're with an average size woman or vice versa, mm-hmm. what are the chances that the child is going to be a little person?
1: Well, you know, that's that's just one of those things. I mean, you don't know. Like for me, I'm a different type. Um, I never did go, go through the tests. You know, I let them took some tests, but when they talked about taking a little plug from my arm, um, it was over. You know, I said, you know, no more. I don't care. You know, I don't care. We have a kid It's going to be what it's going to be. You know, I don't want to go through all that, you know. Um, and she felt the same way.
0: Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to barrykatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man has been in prison for 30 years who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing john f kennedy he started as a runner for the mob in chicago and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around dallas and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed john f kennedy his story the footage the interviews never been seen before you can't find them anywhere except on this documentary go to ikilljfk.com look at the trailer buy this documentary and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special i'm going to choose one person randomly and i will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, I want to go way Way, way back in the Wayback Machine, okay? All right. Take us back to Manhattan where you were born. What was the socioeconomic situation with your family? And what was your first inspiration to be in the entertainment business?
1: All right. In the beginning, the only thing about New York I remember, I know I was born there, but my mother took me to Alabama when I was like about nine months old. You know, and you know it was going to be hard for her.
0: Where was your dad?:
1: My dad, at that time he was he was out of the army, but I think when she took me to my grandmother, they had gotten a divorce. They had gotten a divorce, so she took me to my grandmother to keep me, and it was the best thing that ever happened because I was raised up in a small town. The town is called Uniontown, Alabama. The best thing that had happened to me, population maybe 2,200 at the time, you know. um, And my mother would have been overprotective, you know. I mean, she was young, she was 26, she had graduated from college, she was married, and uh, she was a school teacher. But it would have been hard, it would have been hard for her. So she took me to my grandmother, and my grandmother cared for me, you know, but she would send money you know, to help my grandmother out.
0: So your mom essentially gives you up for adoption within the family to your grandmother. Well, no, not like that. But, I I mean, mean, she basically gives you up to your grandmother, and your grandmother becomes essentially your parent.
1: Yeah, but my mama was always there. It wasn't like she just dropped me off. It was going to be hard, and she had to get somebody to stay with me while she worked. So she she was was living
0: in Uniondale, Uniondale? No,
1: she was living in New York.
0: Okay, so, but she went back to New York, and your grandmother and grandfather raised you. Yes. Do you ever ask them why they agreed to raise another child after they went through their whole life raising your mom, and then another child is dropped on their doorstep? Why did they agree to that? I
1: don't know. My grandmother just, she just loved me so much. You know, she really wanted to adopt me. You know, but my mom said no. I mean, she just loved me that much. We had a great relationship. And I think the way I am now has a whole lot to do with my grandmother and also my mom. But my grandmother, man, everybody knew her in that town. You know, if you came to Uniontown, Alabama, even the Caucasian people, some of them could tell you about my grandmother, you know, like where she lived. And and everybody knew me. I was the smallest person in the town,
0: but when your mom brought you to your grandmother's, mm. did she know that you were a little person?
1: Yeah, yeah, At she nine knew. months, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and she- in some cases, watching TV nine, watching others, there are some little people that look like they could be average, and we find out that they're little. But for me, mostly it's the heads, and a lot of little people are achondroplasia, which is uh A lot of little people are that, you know, they that type. They call them acons, and I'm not an acon, but I didn't let them run tests on me to find out what I, you know, what I am.
0: Got it. So you're growing up through your formative years there. How many times a year do you see your mom?
1: Every other year.
0: And was it hard to stay close to your mom, and did you start feeling closer to your grandmother than you did your mom?
1: I was always closer to my grandmother because I lived with my grandmother. You know, I lived with her, but I was close to my mom. Now, but when you're living with a person, you know, you're always going to be closer to that person.
0: What about your dad? How often did you see him?
1: Didn't. I think when I saw my dad, I think I was in maybe the 8th, maybe the 7th grade. And I went to New York, and we found him. One of my cousins took me to where he was living, and that was when I saw him. Tell me about the meeting. Well, you know, every kid, you know, you want to see your father and you want to know your father. So, you know, it was fine. I mean, I was happy to see him, you know. But when I saw where he lived at, you know, it was, he wasn't living in a very nice place. It was like a hotel. And, like, you walk in the door, it's like this one room, and then the bed pulls out from the wall. Murphy bed. Yeah, yeah. And then the kitchen was over here, and it was a bathroom, and then closet and that was it you know it was the living conditions were not good when did you see your father again after that um it was the next time that i drove out to um drove to new york from alabama drove from alabama to new york got it so you saw him every time you saw your mom no oh no no it wasn't even close those are the only two times i saw my father and that was it Never seen him since? Never seen him since. Don't know whether he's living or dead. You know, I tried to find out, but just, you know, had a problem.
0: All right. Tell me your first inspiration for wanting
1: to be in show business. It was a TV show called The Wild Wild West. Didn't that have a little person in the show? For them, yeah. His name, they call him Dr. Loveless. And I wanted to be like him because for me, watching him... He was really good at what he did besides acting he could also sing and I just looked at that you know his talent he was just so good and then they actually showed him kind of in a fight scene where he was going against one of his guys and well I just thought that was great because I had never seen a little person do that before and he was the one for me that really inspired me and also you know it was Billy Barty you know, watching him on the love boat, you know, also they would have him with a wife, and she, her name was Patty Maloney. Always wanted to work with Patty. And, was uh, Patty
0: average size? No, she
1: was a little person. Had a sweet little voice, and they were on the love boat, and they had an average size son. And that, boy, it was he was so good in that, you know. And also, I think he was on Little House on the Prairie and he was really good in that, where they were calling him the M word, and and they were doing him really bad, and his lady wouldn't give him a job. And at the end of the show, before the end of the show, her daughter had gotten into this well, and nobody could reach her except for him. And he went down and pulled her out of there, you know, and that just kind of brought me to tears. That was a really good good role, and, and he played it. And that's how I thought it would be when I came out to L.A., but when I came out, everybody was in costumes. You know, it was that was the only type of work, costumes.
0: You mean being covered up, your face? Your
1: face covered up, being in a costume. The the leprechauns or being playing a dog or playing a rat. I mean, I done played everything from a dog to a rat. I played all those characters to the Ewok to... Um, the elephant and Michael Jackson's Captain EO, you know that was it, you know, and a guy had told me that's all I would ever do and I wanted to prove him wrong and...
0: Who was that guy?
1: I can't remember, but it was a school it was a school that I was planning on going to, but the guy didn't even give me the test, because he looked at me and he said all I would ever do is be in costume and that was when I had just gotten out to L.A. and I had my aunt and uncle who they were the ones that gave me the opportunity to come to California because they said, you can't make it here in my hometown. They said, you can't make it, and you have too much talent. And they the one gave me the opportunity to come out here and make something of my life.
0: How were you making money at the time, and how old were you? Was it something you decided not to go to college and you decided to come out before college?
1: And No, well, um, yeah, I went to college. That's what I was wanting to do. Uh, they came down in the summer. And they saw me and they were telling me about coming to California, making some of my life, you know. Um, but I wanted to major in music. And even though I played at my high school, they had stopped the musical program about eight to ten years before I got there. And when you get to college, you have to know how to read music. So every other subject or anything I took, you know, I didn't have a problem with those, but it was not being able to read music. And I had to think of something else to do, you know, because they said, you really need to have gotten it in high school, and they said, there's nothing we can do. And I had to think about something else I wanted to do. And I never, you know, the way God planned it, is like they come down that summer, give me an opportunity to come, never thinking I would go until maybe after I graduated from college. But that was what God gave me. It was like, okay, now I got this other thing I can do. And we just, you know, um, a friend of mine's named George, He was an older guy, he always would go places with me. And I said, man, I need you to help me drive to Los Angeles. And he said, I'm working right now. But as soon as I get the opportunity, you know, we can do it. And he came over like Christmas time. And when he came over, we were just talking. And then I said, don't forget, when we get time, you know, I'm ready to go. And he said... We can go now. I said, what happened with your job? He said, I got laid off. And so we left at the end of January of 1977, coming out to California, and that's where it all began.
0: How much money do you have in your pocket, and where do you end up living, and how do you get your first opportunities in the business?
1: Uh, well, when I came out, I had a Ford Galaxy. Five hundred, and so it was me, my grandmother, and my friend George, and, and uh, so we, you know, we came out, and my uncle and aunt had already said that I could stay with them, and so they gave me that opportunity, and that was who I stayed with. No, I didn't have much money. Uh, my mother would send them some, but that didn't help them at all. But they just did this. I mean, I called them my aunt and uncle. They were Mr. and Mrs. Robert Fields. But they just gave me, they were just nice people. You know, who gives people opportunities like that? And they gave it to me. I just called them my aunt and uncle because he said, if people questioned me, you know, question you about it, about, you know, you know, who are these people you stand with? Are they your, who are they? He said, just tell them I'm your uncle and she's your aunt, you know.
0: Take us through the next step in your career. So you come out here, you don't have much money, you're doing costume work. Tell me the first situation where you got your first break where your face was on the screen.
1: Um, it was a commercial called Burger Chef. Phil Silvers played Santa Claus, and it was myself, Billy Barty, and a guy named Joe Gibb. We were elves. Boy, it all comes full circle, huh? Yeah.
0: Your first gig... And now you're in a movie that's the number one movie in America. Yeah. And you're playing a demented elf in a way. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Tell me the first time you did a job and you said to yourself, I'm really good and I am never going to do any other job
1: again. Man, I, I think me, myself, and Irene... Working with Jim Carrey, um, the fact that when I when I got there, and I was in the car, and they were saying to me, they said, "Tony, how are you how are you off script?" Because a lot of a lot of the actors here they scared of Jim of Jim, because Jim is going all over the place, you know. And they said, "Are, are you okay? Are you nervous about this?" Because you know he'll just go off. And it was like, when they said that to me, it was like, right down my alley. (laughs) Oh, I like this, you know. And I remember thinking, uh, well, anyway, the director was telling Jim, he said, Jim, you got to see this guy do the nunchucks.
0: Because a lot of people don't know this about you, but you're a black belt.
1: Yes, yes,
0: yes, I'm a
1: black belt. Now, the nunchucks, were they in the script? No, I was slick. I took the nunchucks, and I remember it was my third audition. I had taken them on the other two, but I never showed them, never said anything. On my third audition, there was this one guy that kept coming back, and I didn't know this guy. He was taller than I was, and I, I was like, man, how good is this guy? And it, and it was like, I got to hear this guy. So I remember I was in the waiting room waiting for my audition, and I decided to go out because I wanted him to read before me. I wanted to hear him because it's like he's got to be coming back for a reason. That means he must be pretty good. So I, I said, I'll be back. I got to go to the car. So when they came out to get me, they said, oh, he stepped out. So they asked to see the other guy. So I went back in. Normally I don't like to hear nobody else read. You could hear through those walls. And so I heard him, and he was pretty good, you know. But I still felt like, ah, I'm, I'm okay, you know. But for, for some reason, I was nervous that day. And so... They called me to come in, and I went in, and I read. And I, somehow we started talking about the nunchucks. And the guy said, can you really do them? And I said, sure. And then he said, because this guy right here, he's, uh, he's a black belt. And he said, no, really, you know, if you can't do them, I said, no, I, I'm, I really can do it. I'm a black belt too. And then so he said, okay. He said, well, we're going to have this other person to read, and then we're going to bring you back. So they had somebody else to read. They brought me back. I did the nunchucks, and all I could see was the white of everybody's eyeballs in there. I mean, it was just white, like ghosts. And, and so when I finished reading, they, I mean, when I finished doing the nunchucks, they said, wow. They said, uh, Tony, uh, we want you to go back out of the room, but don't leave. Don't go anywhere. Just sit in the room, okay? We're going to call you back. And so they listened to the other person. And then they brought me back in, and they said, "Well, you—I know—I'm sure you know by now that you are a guy." And they said, "Man, where did you learn how to do those nunchucks? You know." And 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 that was it. The nunchucks pulled it off.
0: When you're doing the scene with Jim, it feels like he has no fucking idea
1: that you're gonna pull the nunchucks out.
0: Did the director not tell him?
1: No, he knew that the nunchucks were coming. But I told him, I said, look, when I'm working on on my right side, you slap on this side, you know, because I don't want to I don't want to hit you, you know. And so he said, okay, if you see, you can see where he pauses because I'm doing them and I want him to come to this side and slap. I choreographed that whole scene because I didn't want to hit him because the director was saying, well, Tony, you can use whatever chucks you want. You know, if you want to use the real ones, I said, no, I don't want to use the real ones because if I hit him with the real ones, it's going to be over you know and so he he did his thing but he loved working with the nunchucks and his eyes lit up when he saw him it's like he was just thinking of so much in his mind what he could do and i remember not telling him what i was going to do because i it was some stuff that i had ad lib. you know about the chicken when i said because you know how we black people are we just love fried chicken mr charlie you know <laughs> and i brought that in about the fried chicken at the end mr charlie You know, and boy, then Jim went into his thing. He didn't tell me what he was gonna do, I didn't tell him. There was so many people on the street that was just watching us shoot this over and over and over again. Every time we shot it, people were cracking up. Every time, you know, they loved that scene. It just worked well with Jim. And he kept coming over to me and said, man, I would love to do a cop picture with you. Can you imagine? You know, he was just so excited. You know, and I don't know, man. I I guess I'm good. That's what makes me me. It's when I can ad lib. It's when I can improvise. And that's why I don't like doing TV. You know, movies is my thing because I'm able to do what I like to do. And if I ever get the opportunity to where I can be a producer and get the movie that I want, it's going to be all over because people haven't even seen the best of Tony Cox. It's not even close how funny I can be if I get that opportunity. What
0: do you think in your entire career is the
1: funniest scene you've ever done? That's tough. Uh, Definitely Friday. People love the scene with Bernie Mac and him in there with my wife, and I'm catching him. Uh, and, And the other one is, again, I think me, myself, and Irene. So many people love that. When you can do a scene over and over like that, there's a lot of people watching and every time we shot it, people were just laughing, including the director. I mean, uh it it was the highlight of my life just working with Jim. But also in Friday, that was just like going to a comedy festival. Every night all these comedians we going at it, you know, um, down on hundred and twenty six I think in Normandy Boy that was oh, that street was lit up at night. You know, from everybody going after each other, you know, joking, you got Chris Tucker, you got A.J. Johnson, you know, Tiny Lister, who's real big, him and I was going at it. You know, it was just a lot of fun. That was one of the, one of the, I, I think going to work was just, that uh, was just so easy, I, I couldn't wait to get to work.
0: Tell me a director you worked with that really changed your perspective on the craft of acting.
1: There were two. Francis Ford Coppola and Terry Zygoff, the guy that um did uh Bad Santa, he really changed my life for what he did because Terry Zygoff was willing to lose his job for me. Um and tell
0: our audience the whole story. I just wanna uh, set this up for our audience. Being a little person in Hollywood is the antithesis of what we've heard all through our lives in economics classes and college, the law of supply and demand. Ordinarily, the law of supply and demand, the littlest amount of something is the highest value. But for little people, it's the opposite. Every time they're offered a job... Hollywood tries to give them scale or the minimum wage. It doesn't matter if it's the biggest movie in the world or a low-budget film. They're constantly fucking with little people. They are in the lowest paid, and I think Tony has changed that a lot because the last deal that I remember making with you with Mark was a hugely substantial deal for a movie that you did overseas
1: warriors way i was mad because they kept on not talking about who they were getting to be in the movie and they never were saying anything about my contract and i got mad so i didn't want to do it but you were adamant you said no you got to do this and you wanted me to do it because of this actor that I was going to work with, Jeffrey Rush.
0: Jeffrey Rush, that's right. And
1: it was one of the best times that I had, and I could see, like, Jeffrey Rush, this man would be talking to himself, be doing the scenes, and I'm looking at him, and he was so good. He played one of the best drunks in the movie I've ever seen. You know, and I was like, wow. I learned from him. I remember
0: now the situation. My feeling was always that you were a guy who had the greatest scenes with some of the greatest actors and funny people of my generation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want you to do a movie where you were gonna be away from your family for a long time unless you were working with a guy who was an acting savant. Mm. And I thought that one of the things that was missing in your career at the time, you'd worked with amazing people but you'd worked with amazing people, a lot of them that had a natural ability, Mm. like you, that weren't these really trained thespians. Right, right. And Jeffrey Rush, he was like a Daniel
1: Day-Lewis type. This guy was good. I'm glad you decided to do it. I'm glad I did too because, and they explained to me why it took so long. They told me they ran out of money. The people that are putting in money, they ran out of money. But they said, we couldn't let your managers know. Because if if we had told them, they never would have wanted you to come down here and be in the movie. And they said, we had to get backing again. And they got it. And that was when they made the deal.
0: Going back
1: to Bad Santa, tell our audience the story. Well, first of all, I remember sitting at home. I was laying on the couch. And I get this phone call because I had... I decided to have the calls to come to my house and not go to my agent, cause she represented other little people, and I just decided I wanted to hear what was coming my way, and I I get the phone call. I'm on lying on the couch, and all I can remember is like they said it's a job, uh, with Billy Bob Thornton starring in it, and there's a co-starring role, uh, for a little person, uh, for Tony, you know, um, and we would like to see him. And if you know who represent him, give us a call. I was—I got up off the couch so fast, you would have thought I was Fred Flintstone. Yabba dabba doo You know how he'd be in the car with his feet. And I ran to the phone. So
0: you were taking calls in your house. Hi. Yeah, I represent Tony Cox. What do you got? Yo, you got a movie with Billy Bob Thorne? Yep. Uh, I'll get in touch with him and I'll get him right down there. So you were pretending you were somebody else.
1: No, I—I I just wanted to know what was coming my way. And after I would talk to him, then I would let it go to my agent. But I would just, I wanted to know what was coming my way. And so, um, you know, I I told him, you know, who to call, and and they called. But I remember I was just so happy because um, I had been in acting for 23 years at that particular time and had never seen a role like that in my life. And no other little person had ever seen a role like that in their life. You know, and I'm sure that every little person knew that if they got this role, it could change their life, you know, in this business. And I, I went in to read, and um, I, I, at first I asked the director, I said, "Uh, I, it's something I'd like to try. And I said, I know people have been coming in here and probably reading it a certain way, but I would like to try something different. And if you would allow me... You know, I would love to do it, and if not, if it's not the way you want it, then I'll read it maybe the way everybody else been reading it. And he said, oh, "I'm willing to try anything at this point." And then I knew they hadn't found anybody they wanted, and I started to reading it, and I had put some ad libs in and improv, improvised some things, and and the director started to laughing so hard, tears was coming down his eyes. And he stopped me in the middle of the reading and he asked, did they have Kleenex? And (laughs) nobody had Kleenex. And he said, I'll just use my sleeve. And so he said, continue. And I kept reading and he just laughed. And when it was over with, he said, whoa. He said, that was good. He said, but I have some good news and bad news. And I'm thinking, what do you mean bad news? I'm thinking to myself, you just laughed until you cried. What do you mean bad news? You know, and I'm thinking did I do it so wrong until it was funny? You know, and then he said, Well, I tell you, the good news is that nobody have ever nobody has come in here so far and read it like that. He said that was really, really good. The bad news is that this role was not written for African American, it was written for a Caucasian. And I remember my heart just sank, and I'm thinking, 33 years, 23 years I've waited, and here, you know, you're going to come up with something like that, color. You know, and uh, I, I was just hurt. And then he looked at me and he said, you know what? He said, I'm going to have to rethink this. I'm really going to have to rethink. And all I could go on was, you know, believe in what he said but I was just hurt like why after all these years and I just prayed I prayed about it I prayed about it and he kept bringing me back I read about nine times and I remember I read all the way from like April to like June
0: now each time he's bringing you back is he bringing other people in the room are you reading
1: for Billy Bob what is he asking you to do each time Uh, it's just reading different scenes he bring me back I'll read scenes. Only one time he had this guy in in the room, and he was a producer. He was very intimidating. And he had said to the director, Terry Zagall, that that guy would not get the role talking about me. He said, if that's who you want, he would not get the role. The time when I went in to read for that particular time, they had told, my agent had told me, they don't want you to read. And I said, you should. She said, no, they don't want you to read. And she said, sometimes the director just want to see you to make sure that you can get along with the cast. You know, and I said, well, okay. I had done a job in New York City. Actually, I had done two jobs before that, one in New York City, and I just was doing one with Rodney Dangerfield. It was his last movie. Um, And so I went in, and as I pulled in the driveway, I could see this other little person who I felt like would be my competition, and he's just going over the script like crazy. And I, I got on the phone and I asked my agent, I said, wait a minute, are you sure I don't have to read? for this role?" she said, they told me that you don't have to read. And so I get inside, and he's inside, and he's just studying. And so and I'm thinking, maybe I should pick this script up and start looking at it. Was this
0: a guy who you'd lost roles to before? Did you recognize him?
1: Oh, yeah, he, he's known, you know, but I get more roles than he does, but he's real known. He gets his parts of roles, but I don't usually compete against him. You know, every now and then, him and I compete against each other. Do
0: you remember his name?
1: Danny Woodburn. He's a really good actor, you know. But where I got everybody is that besides being doing drama, I also good with, with uh, comedy.
0: So you're in the waiting room, you say to yourself, when this guy's looking over the script furiously, you're thinking to yourself, maybe just as a backup, I should look at the script.
1: Right, but I wasn't prepared. And so they called me back in the room, and I go back, and we talk for a minute, and he said, are you ready to read? And I said, read. And then he said, yeah. And I said, my agent told me I didn't have to read. He said, who told her that? And I'm like, I don't believe this. I really think it was set up. She knew. That she wouldn't have done that. Somebody had set it up because they wanted this guy in so bad that I believe they pulled that. So the guy
0: that didn't want you set you up to fail.
1: Yeah, I, I just think it was every. Nobody wanted me except the director and Billy Bob.
0: Who goes into the room first?
1: He, he goes in first. Now,
0: are you listening through the walls? How's he doing? No, I
1: don't want to hear Danny. I really never wanted to hear anybody except that one guy that time but I don't don't like to hear anybody. I don't want that in my head. But I was just, I wasn't prepared.
0: So you had to do a cold read. So he walks out, you walk in, who's
1: in the room? Um, Two ladies who are producers, the director, but this time it's this guy that's very intimidating. He's about 6'4", 6'5", and you can tell he doesn't like me. I, I mean, I could tell, I could see it on his face. And myself and the director, we became friends I mean, mean, to go ahead of it, he had told me that this guy said, if that's who you want, he's not going to get it, you know. But anyway, he kept bringing me back. I didn't do well on that reading because I wasn't prepared. I knew I I couldn't get it out of my head because in my head, I'm thinking if I just got to meet with the director, everybody likes me. I mean, I don't have a problem with anybody. I'm sure I'm going to get it. You go from that, thinking you got it in your mind, you know, it's just this little thing that you have to go through to now you got to read for it. You don't have it. And I could not pull myself together. I just couldn't. And I went in and I didn't do well and I explained it to him and he said it's okay. and But he kept bringing me back. And the last time that I read, I had to read with this was, they were about to make the, the choice to who they wanted. And I read with Bernie Mac on a Wednesday and I read with uh Billy Bob Thornton on a Friday. Well Bernie Mac and I, we always click anyway. you know, we just had that thing. Uh, then I read with Billy, and I had prayed so hard that the Lord just, you know let me have it, you know, that I would I would just do a great job. And I went in, I remember Billy walking in, and we started to read. And I remember when I started to read, we read that first scene. I just felt like, and this is true, I felt like God was in that room sitting at that desk just looking. And I remember as we read the first scene, the director, it just clicked. The director said, do you guys, would you like to try it again or what you wanna do? I remember Billy Bob raising his head up real slow he said, there's nothing else you can do with that scene. And I was like, yes, because it was one of the best readings I had ever given in my life. And um, we did about four of the scenes, and then they were going to make their choice that Monday or Tuesday. Um, but I remember the director, he told me, he said, look, he said, I talked to my wife the other night, and I told her that if I can't have you as my guy in this role he said i'm not gonna take it i'm not gonna do the movie and he said she got mad he said she was pissed at me and he said i don't blame her because this is more money than i ever made in my life
0: a minimum amount of money for a director directing a studio picture like this would probably be two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. could have been
1: much more yeah because he was also you know producing it too i think he was one of the producers on it which
0: probably would double his money
1: yeah and so he said if i can't have you i'm not doing it and she didn't like it you know but he said you know he said you make this movie fun you know and when it came time to when they were going to make their decision they said it in front of billy bob this guy that said there's no way i was going to get it and everybody was against me um except that director, and then when he said it in front of Billy Bob, the director told me later that before he could stand up and talk in my behalf and say, if I can't have Tony, I'm not doing it, he said, Billy Bob stood up, and he said, I didn't know how Billy felt about you. I really didn't know. And he said, Billy stood up and said, what do you mean you're not going with Tony? He said, Tony is the best guy for this role, the best actor. And he said... The guy turned colors when he heard Billy said that because he was so sure that Billy would go along with him for the other guy. And just recently, with Bad Santa 2, listening to Billy talk about it, he brought up some things which I didn't know. He said that what he liked about me, that I could find that comedy. And he said Tony got in direct even told me, he said, Billy came to me and told me that you're the better actor by far. And he said, Billy sat me down and explained to me why you were the better actor, you know. And he said, you know, Billy was just great. Those two people, that's the reason. And the man, the man upstairs made it all happen because I always say God put people there for you. For me, he put the director there. And when they were about to go over his head before they heard his answer, Billy stepped in. And they were not looking for Billy to say that. And they had to let it go after that. But what I did know, they also was looking to fire me my first day of work. They had everything. They were looking to fire me. And they had this other guy waiting in the wings. He told me later. He said they had me waiting. But then he called their bluff and said, it's either going to be me or Tony. And they had to make the decision at that time. Even my driver knew that I was going to be fired that day. You know, he said, because he knew that producer, and he said, I remember when I picked you up, I'm saying, this kid has no idea what he's about to go through. And he said, I remember coming up on the set and watching you, and he said, man, you were flawless. You
0: ever see that producer again at the premiere or after the movie became such a big hit, and did that producer ever come up to you and say, Tony, I was wrong?
1: No. It was a couple of producers. The one that I said was intimidating, he called me from Texas. And it was all my answering service. he said, Tony, he said, you were great. Thanks for doing the movie. He said, you were sensational. He said, all these write-ups that's in the paper about you. And he said, man, you deserve it. He said, we're in Texas right now. I'm producing another movie. But if it's anything you need, anything you want, just let me know. And I said, wow, how money changed people. So. <laughs> All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going
0: to mention a name of somebody. You can tell me what you think about them. You can tell me a sentence, a paragraph. You can tell me a story. You can tell me one word, whatever comes to mind. Michael Jackson. Uh, one of the
1: nicest people I've ever met in my life.
0: Rumor has it that he was supposed to teach you how to moonwalk.
1: yes. Yes, he was. And people won't believe this. He gave me his phone number, and I lost it. I lost Michael Jackson. But when I tell people that, they go, you did what? I lost it. He was about to go on tour, and he said, when I come back, give me a call, and I'll show you how to do the moonwalk. Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, man. Rodney was just the best. You know, Rodney said, when I saw you against Jim Carrey and I saw you in that movie, he said, I didn't need you to read. I told him I want you. I want you and I want you in that movie. Anybody can stand up to Jim Carrey. Hey, they good.
0: Tell our audience what he said to you when he first met you on the set.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, he walked in. He said, all right, God damn it. He said, you damn scene still don't. You still no fucking scenes from me. <laughs> Clint Eastwood. Uh, Clint Eastwood, what I remember about him is that when he shoot it, that's it. You know, one or two takes, it's over. He's going to the next scene. Bernie Mac. (laughs) One of the greatest comedians of our times. There would never, ever be another Bernie Mac. James Franco. James Franco is one of the smartest guys around. That guy on every break is just like he was reading something, reading a book. He's really, really a nice guy, I really like James. George Lucas. George Lucas is a very, very quiet guy. But he's, he sees everything, he sees it all. Tim Burton. Tim Burton, when I met Tim Burton he was real young. And when I did Beetlejuice I remember telling Tim that he's gonna be big after that movie and he became big. And I beat him in basketball. All of them playing horse. (laughs) Richard Pryor. Oh, man. Richard was nothing what I expected. Richard was real quiet, quiet type of guy. Just real quiet, came over, talked to me. But he just was so different. He's not like what I would think. You know, I curse and have fun like that. He's just real quiet, like almost shy, like really nice, though. Snoop Dogg. Oh, Snoop is the man. That's my man. I enjoy doing his video and always enjoy talking to Snoop when I see him. Ice Cube. Ice Cube. Quiet, smart guy. Um, Just glad that he gave me the opportunity to be in a real funny movie and had a time of my life in it. The Farrelly Brothers. Oh, man, those guys are great. Really great directors. Um, Just had a great time with them martin lawrence oh man martin martin very very funny guy who told me uh what i needed to do if i ever got a series that i needed to be in charge make sure that i get to be a producer and 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 to do things that i wanted to do in the show for it to make it you know be the man of of the show eminem oh eminem was just the greatest uh, didn't know he was a big fan of mine's. Found out, found that out. Um, had a great time shooting the video. Um, that's one guy that he's really good, and I I like hearing him rap because he's got it. That guy's got it. He's special.
0: Chris Tucker.
1: Chris Tucker. Now he's one of the funniest guys I've ever seen, and that's the truth to me. When I saw him on Def Comedy Jam. That guy was so funny and I said one day I want to work with him and I got that opportunity to work with him on Friday. I don't think he even knows how funny he is. Jim Carrey. Oh man. My type of guy. Uh, he'll go anywhere to find that comedy and so will I. I'll walk a wall with Jim Carrey.
0: Penitentiary.
1: That movie. That was the movie that kind of started my career and um I always remember the director, Jamal Fanaka, who told me that I'm going to make you, that this movie going to make you big, and it did change my life. I first met you on the set of a pilot, Dane Cook. Dane Cook. And I remember that because I remember saying to somebody, who is this guy? (laughs) You know, because you were always... Talking about me or him. Yeah, you, because you own the monitor and you were looking at the monitor. And what I liked about it is, like, when Dane would walk off the set or like, he had finished scene and you'd be, like, behind him, like, you're so fucking good, man. You just don't know how fucking good you are. Just look at you, man, the way you do those things. I was like, oh, I like this. This guy would be good as a boxing trainer. <laughs> 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 And that's when I met with you and I wanted to
0: represent you. Yeah,
1: yeah. You came over and you started talking and you started talking to me. I did this line and um, I had made up something, you know, and everybody was walking. They were walking slow and I was walking behind them. I said, all right, get the molasses out your ass. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) One of the biggest things about that TV
0: series that I remember fighting hard for and Dane too we didn't want any dialogue that had anything to do with being a little person. We just wanted you being his boss. Yeah. And you were so amazing. Thank you. Billy
1: Bob Thornton. Oh, uh, man. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton is just the greatest. I owe uh, him and, and also I got I to gotta say Terry Zygoff, my career for changing my life. You know, those are the people that God put there for me. And Billy Bob has been everything to me, um, those two guys. And um, I just personally can't thank Billy enough. I don't even want to think about where I would have been if Bad Center 2 hadn't come along. So, again, Billy, if you're listening, thank you so much. And to Terry Zygoff, thank you, because you kept me in there. Thank you. Francis Ford Coppola. Boy, Francis Ford Coppola, he's the man. He's the only person that I ever was, like, intimidated by because I knew about The Godfather and all the movies that he had done. And he was really one of the best, if not the best, director I've ever worked for because I like what he does. He had us to do improvs about the characters that we were about to play. Forget about the lines. Let's do the improv." And I just remember that, and I remember Michael Jackson coming over to me, couldn't stay away from me because he was laughing, and Francis said, Michael, what is wrong? He said, tell him, stop making me laugh. I said, I'm not doing anything, I'm playing my character. You know, and Michael just thought I was just so funny. But that's what I remember about Francis, he that improvisation that he had us do, man. I always do that now before I do a film, like, about my character, and I thank him for that. Explain to our
0: audience what that process is that he told
1: you to do. Well, we all you know, instead of worried about the lines and stuff, he just wanted us to improvise what we thought our characters were about. Like like for me, I was Hooter and I was the one that always would get stuff going, you know, and I um by by getting stuff done I played this keyboard and that what made the ship run and he wanted me to improvise what that character was like, you know, and he said, don't worry about the lines, just just do it, so I came up with what I thought my character would do, like Michael, he was the captain of the ship, well, be a captain, these are your people in, you know, in, in the ship, so run it, you know, and that just, to me, just did it for me.
0: When was the last time
1: you cried? I've cried many times, but I think when, I've, I've cried since then, but one of the times was when I was just trying to go for the role of a bad sinner and just like everything was against me and I was like, why why am I going through this? Why do I have to go through this? you know and, and just saying to God, why? I mean a role come along, you know, 23 years for it to come and here they don't want an African American you know, it's for a certain race, you know, Caucasian, and it was like, why, why, and I just said, Lord, please work it out, and that was a song that was on the radio, it's a gospel song, but I I don't really know the song that well, but it's like, this, this burden or whatever is not yours to bear alone. it's the Lord, and I just remember that song helped me a lot, and, um, I just went through so many ups, and no ups, just downs, you know. And it, it to be in acting, I, I got to tell you, mentally, if you don't have it, acting will break you. It will break you. So always tell people, mentally, you have to have it. And uh, thank God that, you know, I had it. I don't think anybody's been through no more than I have.
0: Tell me the role that religion
1: plays in your career and your life. Well, religion means everything to me. My whole career is about God because God does everything for me. And I always say it's not about man, it's about God. God controls everything. And so, you know, it, it's been roles that, that, you know, have come up, and I, I felt like I should have had those roles, but they didn't go my way. But I think the biggest thing that changed my life, it was a part for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was not with Disney. It was with Shelley Duvall, Tale Theater. And I remember for the first time, these guys that I was reading with, these were guys that were beating me out for roles. And when I was in acting school, you know, I was top of the class. I'm, I was wondering, are these guys so much better than me? And it was a time when that almost broke me. But I don't let anything break me. And I was just like, you know, when I got a chance, they, they dwindled it down to eight people. And as I watch these guys, I'm looking, I'm listening at them. The first guy used to beat me out for rows, and I'm listening at him. I'm seeing so many things he's doing wrong. Second guy, third guy, terrible. And I'm looking, I'm saying, on my worst day, these guys couldn't beat me out. And... I ended up getting the role, which I thought I wouldn't get. And I remember I was almost broken to the point where she said, write down the role that you would like to have, which is the lead role, and then write down another role that, you know, would be your second choice. By me having not worked in a while, I never wrote down the lead role. I wrote down two other roles because I just wanted to work. But I did ended up getting that job.
0: Your proudest moment in show business?
1: My proudest moment in show business. Um, when I was riding with my wife, we were riding down Hollywood Boulevard, and I turned the corner, and there were three people. It was a guy, a girl, and another guy. And as I turned the corner, I could read their lips, and they said, there goes Tony Cox. And I always thought nobody knew my name. And that just, it just did something to me, just my name, that they all said there, I could read their lips, there go Tony Cox. And man, I don't know, it just did something to me.
0: Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level.
1: Well, it was when I told you, like, when I got out to California and I went to that acting school and I was going to take a screen test, And I had my aunt in the room, my grandmother, and my uncle. And this man just broke me down, I mean, telling me I would never be nothing. You know, I would always be in a costume. He said, look at you, you're black, you got a strike against you. He said, the only thing you ever do is be in a costume. And I remember I was so hurt, and I went outside and I was—I had tears in my eyes, and my aunt looked at me, and she said, look, I know you're not going to let that bother you. She said, that man don't know who you are. She said, you're from Uniontown, Alabama. That man don't know what type of heart you have. And she said, you know what I would do? She said, I know you won't do it, but she said, I would come back and go to this school, and I would show him. But that, what he said to me, it just did something to me. And I remember going back about two years later to that school and speaking to that class, you know, about what it is to make it in acting. And I got a standing ovation. I went and told that guy off, and he got fired. I told him off, and I said, you talk to me the way you did. And I said, why did you do me like that? You don't even know me. I said, look at me now. And he tried to say, I said, no, you're not going to say anything. you just going to listen. And I told him, and I told him, you hurt me in front of my grandmother and my aunt and my uncle. And I told him, you shouldn't even have this job. And after I finished telling him what I had to tell him, I left, and I slammed the door, and I felt so good.
0: Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in a small town in Alabama or wherever it is across the world? who has a dollar and a dream and aspirations to being in the entertainment business, how in the world will they get to the point where they have the kind of career that you have?
1: You know, it's not about the town that you come from. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about you and how bad you want to do something or to become somebody. Um, For me, I would just say mentally... You got to have it. If you're going to come out and be an acting or you know, whatever you're going to be, mentally you have to have it. Uh, in my hometown, nobody gave me a chance. I, well, a couple of people did, but a lot of people didn't, and they talked about me. I used that to fuel me, to make me who I am. And, and one thing about it, when you do the thing that you want to do and you make it, all those people that talked about you, then everybody want to be on your bandwagon. People were telling me, I knew you could do it. I said you could do it. Those are the same people that talked about me, didn't give me a chance. Um, I wanted to prove that coming from a little town, it doesn't mean anything. If you want to be an astronaut, you can be an astronaut. Whatever you want to do, do it and believe that you can do it. But you always got to have faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I have faith. I have faith in my God that whatever I wanted to do, that I know he would be there for me. And that's what I have to say. Always stay ready. Always stay ready. Because you never know when your opportunity is going to come. And you may not get but one shot. And if you miss it, that could be it. So just stay ready. That's my advice. Tony Cox.
0: Tony Cox, that was truly incredible. I am so grateful. First podcast you ever did?
1: Yes, and I've never done anything this long. I can't believe I was able to do it.
0: Neither can my producers. (laughs) But they keep doing it week after week, telling me to shorten it. Anyway, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. I really appreciate
1: it. Thank you, Barry.
0: Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased... The documentary, I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary. And you can get it at the website, ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer. And it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Ray Polk from hopedale massachusetts i'm from massachusetts i have no idea where that is but i'm sure it's beautiful congratulations ray you are a winner also i figure i might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message a review on the itunes comment review section as well why not so let me look here randomly and pick somebody all right, landing on Day Trip Heat Herc. Fantastic. What an original name. This was a four-star review on October 15, 2014, titled Cool Podcast. It reads, my professor at Long Beach City College told us to listen to this podcast. This was my first podcast, and I liked it. This was interesting to listen to. I'm going to let my friends know about this, and maybe they will listen as well. Luis Martinez Thank you Luis A.K.A. Day Trip Heat Herc I'd like to know what your second choice was Congratulations You are a winner And as always This has been an episode of Industry Standard With me, Barry Katz And if you like the show Tell all your friends And if you don't like the show Tell all your friends you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer. Cause they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave down in the valley, fortune a fortune.